0: Thank you for downloading and listening to the Briam Bible Church Sunday morning podcast. Berean Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at 11, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.bereanshoreline.org. And invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there uh, should be Bibles on the edge of the pews. And if you need one, someone can hand one down to you. We'd love to have you follow along. And if you uh, don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take one of these Bibles with you and and have it. So those are available. Let us go to the Lord in prayer this morning as we begin. Father, as we have just sung, um, we understand that the only reason that we are here today is not because of what we have done or what we can do, but because of your grace. Uh, we, we ask that you remind us of that this morning. Oftentimes we go through our weeks and our lives of trying to impress people with the things that we can do and the accomplishments that we have and the ways in which uh, we have been successful and and we oftentimes form our, our identity around those things in the world and yet when all is said and done, all that we have is is you. And may we be hidden in you as we just sung. May we find our rest in you and you alone. Uh, strip us of those pretenses. Strip us of those things that make us feel important. Uh, and let us rest in your goodness and your grace today. Pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, we are in Acts chapter 4. And those of you that were in Sunday school, at least some of your Sunday school classes, uh, were looking at chapter 4, verses 1 through 31 today. I won't name which classes didn't get to that today, but you maybe know who you are. Uh, and, uh, we, uh, we've been working through this study in the, through the first part of Acts. And, uh, just as a recap for us as we, as we begin here, we, we've, we've been working through this over time and over the last few weeks and it's it's easy for us to get lost track of what the timeline is really looking like and and really what's going on here. And so I want us to just to to recap and to take a look at what's going on so that we have an understanding of what's what's going to happen today. So if you if you flip back in your bibles to Acts chapter 1, you'll see that that my bible in Acts chapter 1 has a heading of Jesus taken up into heaven and and we looked at this this first week that that here you have these disciples so this is this is 40 days after Jesus's resurrection so 40 days after Easter the disciples are standing together and I'm sorry I'm just going to try to adjust this away from my mouth I don't know if that's popping to you but it is to me um, the disciples are standing together with Jesus uh on top of uh mountain and and he's giving them instructions he's teaching them and and they they come to him and they say is it is now the time that you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And and there's they had this expectation, this understanding that here you have this this man Jesus, who we have been thinking for the past three years is the Messiah. We've been following him around, we're his disciples, he's been teaching us, we've been learning, he's been doing miracles, it's been amazing. And then we go to Jerusalem and there's these confrontations with the leaders of Israel, and it's It's this impressive thing. There are these crowds that are celebrating as he comes in. And then within a week, he's killed. And their whole world crumbles. They think this man that we've been with for the past three years is dead. He's gone. And everything that we have been hoping for was wrong. And then, two days later, three days later, Sunday morning from Friday to Sunday. There's these rumors. The women have gone to visit his grave and they come back saying that he's alive. And then soon, he's there in the room with them, speaking to them. He's, he's back. He's, he's been raised to life. And they spend 40 days with Jesus and he's teaching them. And at the end of Luke, it talks about how Jesus was teaching them all how all of the things that were written in the Old Testament spoke and foretold of what had to happen to him, how he had to be crucified, how his death was bringing about the forgiveness of sins for the nation of Israel, but not just for Israel, but for the world. And there's there's this time of learning and this expectation that now, okay, now this man that we've been following, he's, he was killed, we thought it was over, but now he's back, and now, here we are 40 days later, is, it, is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom? This thing that we've been waiting for. And he says to them in in verse 7 he says it's not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority but you will receive power from the holy power when the holy spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth after he said this he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight they were looking up intently into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go. It's 40 days they're with Jesus again, and then he's gone. And they're not really sure what's happening. Oftentimes we read these stories and we, and we think, okay, they kind of had like... uh they They had the big picture, right? They had the whole book of Acts, and they are going to see what hap- but they they're like figuring this out, and they don't really know what's happening, and they're waiting. these men say, "Go back and and he's gonna, he's going to return at some point." And then ten days later comes Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit comes and fills them and they're, and they're in Jerusalem, and they begin speaking in all kinds of languages that they've never spoken before, and people understand them, and they they're speaking about Jesus. And we're told that thousands are coming to put their faith in Jesus. Within ten days of Jesus being gone, they go from a group of about 120 to thousands. And they're, and they're still speaking. And this is just, this is just days. And, and Peter addresses the crowd. And then shortly afterwards, there's this encounter that we looked at last week in which Peter and John are going into the temple. And there's a man who's, who's begging at the temple gates. And, and he's healed. Peter speaks. And, and he, the man is healed through the power of Jesus. Uh, and, and this whole crowd gathers and Peter again begins speaking and preaching about the power of, of the resurrected Jesus Christ and how he has helped make this man walk. And there's, a, there's crowds again and speaking. And we looked this morning about how some people started to not like this. And all of a sudden there's opposition. And that the leaders of Israel have come, and they and they come to Peter and John, and they arrest them, and they say, "You guys need to stop speaking about this man named Jesus." And the leaders of Israel, or Peter and John, say, uh, "You decide what's right for us, or you you think about this. We have to decide what's right. Do we obey God and what we have seen God do, or do we obey you?" The implication, of course, is that we're not going to obey you. We're going to obey God. We cannot stop speaking about these things that we have seen and heard. And they continue to pray and seek God. And here's where we begin in, in verse 32. But but I tell you all of that to, to point out and to remind you that as we read these black and white words on a page, there's there's a suddenness and an unknown and a mystery about what's going on in this community that's gone from a small group of people to thousands, and they're they're being led by the Holy Spirit in a way that they never anticipated before. There's a wonder that's going on. There's a newness. There's a strangeness, and this is we're talking. Uh, we're not given an exact timeline about how long has happened from from Acts chapter two to Acts chapter four, where we're picking up today, but but it's probably a matter of weeks or months at the most. You think about all that hap- has happened in your life in the last few weeks or the last few months, and some some of you can look back in your life and say, "Well, there's a lot that's happened in the last few months." And others say, "I can't like it seems like just yesterday it was summertime, um, and we were just our kids were just getting out of school and now they're going back in it, and it, it, time just has flown by." And this is a, this is not a huge amount of time, and there, so there's this wonder of of what's going on. There's this excitement of God is doing something in their midst but there's this strangeness that they they have some idea of what Jesus has taught them about the scriptures and and their understanding of what has happened and the and the resurrection and the implications of that through the old testament scriptures to what's happening now in in their lives but there's also a, a mystery and an unknown they don't have the whole picture of what's going to happen to them and how this is all going to play out there's an expectation that that somehow what's happening here is the beginning of something new, but they don't really know when Christ is going to return. They don't know how it's going to happen. And, and, and so they're taking it one step at a time. And it's important for us to pause and remember that because oftentimes we look at a guy like Peter and John, especially at this part in, this, in the story, and we think well, these guys were like apostles. These guys We put them on a pedestal of all that they must have known and been aware of. And yet, they don't know. And they're figuring it out. And they're wrestling through these ideas. And there's a strangeness to what's going on. They begin some instructions, but even, I mean, Acts chapter 1, where they're standing there and, it's, and they're waiting for Jesus to come back as he goes up into heaven. And these guys show up and they say, what are you doing? Go back. He'll, he'll come back. You don't know when. They say, now are you going to restore the kingdom? He says, it's not for you to know, but you will be my witnesses. And so they go and they begin to be his witnesses and they begin to proclaim. And here's where we pick up in verse 32 today. Uh, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold the field he owned, and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest of it and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold and after it was sold? Wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear, seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me. Is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. So it starts here with uh, seemingly a pretty happy story and ends with a less than happy story. And I'll be honest with you as I was as I was preparing Pastor Jim assigned me this this passage and as I was preparing this the last week uh, I did everything I could to not have to talk about the last part of this. I thought, well, you know it's you know get the good principles out of the first part and uh and we'll just you know let let him talk about that Sunday night or something like that <laughs> uh but the reality is uh these two stories are connected and and uh and we can't ignore the second and only talk about the first because luke- Luke placed these two stories here as he's writing these these uh this story uh as as one event one thing that he wants us to know about and it, and it makes us uncomfortable and it's hard and it's it's the sort of thing that oftentimes you think about uh you hear people say well the god in the old testament is a god of judgment and anger and that's where he's striking people dead and in the new testament he's all about love and grace but then you come across a passage like this and you think i don't i don't really like that I don't, want to, I don't have to think about a God like that, and yet it's there. And, and so, what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about these two stories and how they're connected, and, and really answer the question and, and look at the question: Why does Luke tell these stories? And why does he tell these stories specifically here? And what is he trying to, to say to his original audience? And what is he trying to say to us today in the 21st century? And what can we, what can we learn from this? Um, and I don't know if I have—I uh, I don't plan to give you a, a satisfying answer for those questions. Uh, I don't think I have a satisfying answer for that. But, but we're going to address it. We're going to talk about it, and uh, as you go home today, you can you can keep talking about it, and, and maybe you can come up with something more satisfying. But I think there 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 are things that we can learn from this, and things that we can take away that. That we can understand about what's what's going on, so we're, let's do that. So first of all, we have to ask these questions, what are the expectations of of the apostles here? What are the expectations? and we're going to start with this first part because I think as we begin to understand what's happening in at the end of chapter four, it gives us a better understanding of what's happening in the beginning of chapter five and and uh, and they'll kind of work together. But first of all, so we're told that all the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. So we need to talk and pause about and what are the expectations, what's going on in this community that this is true? That this is the kind of relationship that these are the kind of things that are happening, and we're told we're told that that they're one heart and one mind. And this this would have been actually a, a couple. They would have had a couple of ideas for what is going on here. So a couple of things. Uh, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 15. As I studied this week, almost every commentator pointed out that probably there's some connection here in Deuteronomy 15. With, uh, with what is happening in, in Acts chapter 4. And so uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 15, we're, we're, uh, Moses is giving the Israelites instructions about what is going to happen as they go into the land. What are the expectations? And he's specifically he's talking about what becomes known as, as a year of jubilee or a year of canceling of debts. And so the idea would be that the Israelites would, would uh, loan to one another but that every seven years those debts would be canceled. And so uh, he's, he's giving instructions about this, but then in the middle of that, in verse four of Deuteronomy 15, he says this. He says, "However, there need be no poor people among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, He will richly bless you." The idea being that, okay, there's going to be needy people among you, but really there shouldn't be needy people among you because God's going to bless you so much that everyone should be provided for. But regardless, he's giving these instructions for debt. And And he goes on, just for the context here, he says, He will richly bless you if only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I am giving you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised, and you will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. You will rule over many nations, but none will rule over you. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. And then verse down in verse 10 he says, Give generously to them, and do so without a grudging heart. Then, because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. So right away, as you look at that, you almost see some contradiction, right? uh, uh, Moses in Deuteronomy says, there need be no poor people among you. And then in verse 11, he says, there will always be poor people among you. Uh, But regardless, there's this idea that, that... Because of the blessing that God is giving you, you should be able to care for those in need around you so that there shouldn't be needs for the people around you. And a lot of commentators, a lot of scholars have an understanding that that what the, the community of these early believers felt and understood about what was happening in their midst was that God was doing something so new and radical in this community that they were experiencing some kind of this year of canceling of debts that whatever needs they would be able to come together as as a community and care for one another so they would have had somehow this this biblical foundational understanding of when god has blessed us which he has through the resurrection of jesus we can now care for one another and we can support one another but there also were, were contemporary examples of this. For the, for the Jewish audience here, for, and especially for the, the Jews that are here in this community, they would have known very much uh, the example of the Essene community. Uh, you may have heard that name, the Essene community, maybe not. Uh, how many of you have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? So the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, were, were produced by this Essene community out in the wilderness. And what they were, they were were a people who had separated themselves from the rest of the nation of Israel. And they chose to to move out into the wilderness as as like a a fellowship and a commune uh, in in order to keep themselves pure. And they were living out in the wilderness and they they shared all their possessions. And they they lived in this this area where, where everyone brought their wealth together and then distributed it equally in this um, sort of utopian, here we are out here in the wilderness waiting for the Messiah to return and save us. And so they would have had this example of this. And then in the Greeks, so so Luke is writing to a, a guy named Theophilus and his audience is very much a, a Greek audience, people who probably were, were Gentiles. And they also would have had some understanding from the philosophers of their day and, and previous philosophers, Aristotle, Plato, they would have had all of these understandings that, that an ideal among friends is to be in a community where everyone is sharing their things equally. And, and there's we don't necessarily have examples of this actually happening, but this would have been a, a well-respected and a, a well-looked-after uh, uh, hope within the Greek community that, man, if you have a group of friends where you can just share and, and everyone can get along and nobody owns their own stuff but we're all sharing together, that, that's an ideal that we're looking for in, in, in Greek society. And so they would have had these examples, and, and so as as the audience would have read this, uh, as Theophilus would have read this, as the believers would have been experiencing this, they would have had some contemporary ideas of what's going on. But there's some differences. Um, there's some differences for the seen community because this was a requirement for the seen community, that they, if you're going to be a part of this community, you have to surrender everything that you have, and it goes into a pot, and then it, it gets distributed. But this doesn't seem to be the expectation here. Uh, we're, we're not told that everybody sold a field, everybody that had a field. Barnabas is a guy who sold a field. Uh, but he's really, he's, he's named here because he's he's an extreme example of somebody who did this. Uh, and we don't know if Barnabas had other fields that he didn't sell, but we're told that he sold this field. Um, even with uh, in our next story with Ananias and Sapphira, uh, Peter says, look, the field was yours. You could have sold it or not. And when you sold it, you could have done whatever you wanted with the money. But what you chose to do is you chose to bring some of the money and pretend like it was all of the money so that you could look good. Uh, and later on, uh, in Acts chapter 12, we don't have to turn there, but but they're meeting in the home of, of a woman named Mary, who's the mother of John Mark, and she still has a home that they're meeting in. She didn't sell it. To give to the community, so there's this idea that uh, unlike the Essene community that they would have they would have known about, some people could choose to opt in and and give what they wanted, some people could not. Um, It was it was up to you. This is a voluntary act of generosity for the community. Uh, And for the Greeks, this would have been an expectation of this this sharing. This is among friends. This is among social equals. So like, hey, yeah, we're peers, we all get along and let's all just kind of choose to be friends together in this place. But here, it's it's the people who have much are giving to those who are in need. And these people who uh, would maybe never associate with one another in any other circumstances are now being formed by this bond and becoming a family in which they choose to give and to share with one another. And why are they doing this? This is really significant. Verse 33, it says, With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Something about what they have experienced in the resurrection of Jesus has changed them. And not just changed them, but changed their fundamental understanding of what God is doing in the world. You have all these people who uh, months earlier were not living in Jerusalem sharing all the things that they had together. Thousands of people were being told are are part of this community that are sharing, that are giving, that are are practicing this kind of generosity. They weren't doing it before they came across Jesus where they were told about the resurrection of Jesus. And this understanding that somehow... What had happened in, through this person who was crucified and then raised to life had brought about a blessing and an understanding and an expectation that God is doing something different in the world than he was doing earlier, that he was doing before Easter. And that this, the shift that has happened is, is the beginning of of a new way of understanding our reality, of God's power in the world. And so that as they are testifying, it says that that they're giving, that they're they're sharing, this is a way in which, and this is the, a demonstration of the power, the apostles continue to testify to the Lord Jesus Christ, that these things are connected. The resurrection of, of Christ is somehow causing them to be the kind of community that is sharing with one another. And so they do it. They gather together. They begin to share with one another. And so, as we read this, we really need to to ask our question: um, Is what's happening here in, in this end of uh, in the end of Acts chapter four is this instructive for us today? Is what Luke is telling us here says this is what this church did. This is what this community of people did. These early believers. And so this is really the expectation for what believers ought to be doing for the rest of history, that they ought to be giving in this way and they ought to be living in this way, in the way that they were. Or uh, is it simply explanatory? Is he simply saying, this is what they did, and that's part of the story of how this began, but this isn't necessarily instructions for how you ought to then live later. And I would say uh, it's it's a little bit of both, and I want to just take a look at a couple examples of of this. Um, so so as the story of Acts continues, uh, Peter begins going around and preaching, and eventually a, a guy named Paul shows up and he begins going around and preaching. One of the things that's significant uh, that we that we don't see throughout the rest of the book of Acts is Paul coming along and saying. Uh, when he when he begins churches and he's starting these communities, saying, "Okay, uh, here's how you ought to share your wealth among each other. And if anybody has land, you need to sell it and put it into a pot so that it, it can be shared." This doesn't doesn't seem to be an expectation uh, throughout the community. But let's just t- take a look at a couple a couple passages. Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. Paul is is getting ready to sign off this this long letter that he's he's writing. He's talking about his plan. He wants to go visit Spain. He wants to come visit Rome and he says in verse uh, starting in verse 25. He says, "Now, however, in Romans chapter 15:25, "Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem." They are pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings. They owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. And so Paul has been going around establishing churches, visiting these churches that he's established. And as he's doing so, on his way back to Jerusalem, he's been visiting these churches, and he's been collecting an offering and a gift for these people, these believers in Jerusalem because they're experiencing a famine. And so he's he's collecting money so that they can be provided for. So you have, again... Uh, an example of this, of what we see in Acts chapter four, happening here. Paul is going around saying, "Here are people in need," and he goes around and he collects money for the uh, people who have much, so that he can share with the people in need. And so, and if you, if we were to read in Second Corinthians and other letters, you can actually uh, read Paul writing to these churches and saying, "Hey, I'm collecting this offering," and he gives all kinds of instructions about, "Hey, don't, I'm not making you do this. This is something that you." can do willingly and there's no expectation of here's how much you have to give Uh, I'm coming around collecting an offering I'm letting you know so that you can be prepared to give if the Lord has has laid that on your heart to give Uh, 1 Thessalonians just a few chapters over or a few books over 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 Just look at a couple more of these 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 it says uh, verse nine, "Now about your love for one another, we don't not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other, and in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do some more and to do so more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. So here you have kind of the reverse of that. Paul is saying, hey, get a job, work, provide for yourself, uh, do what you can. And in fact, uh, just in his next letter to the Thessalonians, uh, just the next page over, he says something very similar. He says, uh, "He says we, uh, verse 10 of Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 3 says for even when we were with you we gave you this rule the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat we hear that some among you are idle and disruptive they are not busy they are busy bodies such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat and as for you brothers and sisters never tire of doing what is good so again this instruction uh, get a job do earn the food that you need and then last one Ephesians chapter 4 Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, he says this, Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. So here we have both. Paul says, get a job, work. uh, If you're stealing, stop it, and get a job, work. So that you can provide for those who are in need. And so there's this, there's, there is this understanding, this expectation that if you have the ability to earn an income, then you ought to be doing that. But also along with that, that part of your income, part of what you are earning, should be uh, used to share with those who aren't able, who don't have. And there's this, there's this reciprocity that, that we're, we're earning, we're working, but we're also looking out for the needs of those around us and we're providing. And that This is the kind of community that not only uh, a community that is providing for one another, it seems like some of this providing for those in need is the people around you. But at least in the case of the Jerusalem church, but Paul is going around to all of these other churches and saying, if you have resources to give give to these other people so there's a responsibility to the community to their local community but also to to the churches around them, to other churches around them so you have uh, what what we have here and what i think as we as we go back to acts chapter four as i said i think we have both instructions and explanation but here's here's what is happening here's an explanation of what was happening in this community but the principles of what was happening here, um, the principles of caring for one another, of, of no one claiming their own rights, of, of valuing people over our possessions, um, uh, of having, of, of removing our selfishness, of removing, uh, our ownership in these things so that we can care for others is, is instructive. And not necessarily in the sense that, every and, and again, this is not really what's expected here in, even in Acts chapter 4, that everyone that has property needs to go out and sell it so that you can provide. But if the Lord lays that on your heart, great. Barnabas is used as, an, as a great example of that. Uh, but ultimately what we get, uh, as as we look at Acts chapter 4 and chapter 5, as we look at the stories the 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 different verses that we looked at in Paul's letters as uh, we get a picture of this first century Christian community um, things are not smooth and perfect and a lot of times you might hear somebody say like oh well we just need to get back to like the way that the, the early church was where they were you know you look at Acts chapter 4 and look at how well they were doing but you say yeah but look at Acts chapter 5 uh, and in Acts chapter six, and we'll look at next week or in a couple of weeks, there's there's more conflict that comes along. All of a sudden, some of the people who uh, are the widows and being provided for aren't getting as much as some of the other widows who are, who are being provided for. And there's a conflict, and they need to work that out. And and as you go on, I mean, in Ephesians, somebody, people are stealing. You have all of these early churches that are that are a mess. From from the very beginning, and it's not an ideal. It's not it's not as though there's there's. There, I mean, we're within within weeks, months of this movement beginning, and already there's conflict and tension. That's not just coming from outside persecution, but within the community. And Ananias and Sapphira, I think. I mean, you don't see God striking down dead every single person that that lies from here on out, but I think. I think God is using Ananias and Sapphira as an example. Uh, And I don't know, again, it it isn't an easy answer to to address, but I think God is showing the seriousness with which this community is meant to be united together. And you have this this beginning phrase in in verse 32 of chapter 4 that all the believers were one in heart and one in mind. And then this... The the language that, that Peter uses about what has happened for Ananias of Satan has filled your heart. The only other time that Luke uses this language in any of his writings is when he's talking about Judas and that Satan entered Judas's heart in order to betray Jesus. And there's this understanding that what's happening with Ananias and Sapphira is a betrayal of the unity and a betrayal of of the work that the Spirit is doing in their midst, and it's serious. And we may not like it, but it's it's there. It's it's a story in the Bible. And the reality is, when you look and you think about your own relationships, and when there is deceit, when there is uh, Anger, bitterness that is held on to. It does kill, doesn't it? it? may not be physical death, but it kills a community. It kills the work that the Holy Spirit can be doing in our midst. That when there is conflict, when there are people who choose selfishness, when they choose their own desires and their own importance and their own uh, desire to look good over the life of the community and the work that God is doing through the resurrected Jesus Christ. And to say, this is more about me than it is about what God is doing, things can break apart. And things can die. The picture of this early church is not smooth and perfect and neat. We never see that in Scripture, that from these first believers all the way through the last churches that we see uh, Paul writing to. There's always conflict. There's, there's struggles. There's things that need to be addressed. Things that need to be corrected. It, it's complicated. And there's not some past ideal of any church where things were perfect. Those of you that have been been around this church since it began uh, probably have memories of all the goodness of what things were like at the beginning, but there was probably conflict in those early days. Those of you that have been a part of starting a a company, starting a business, um, things were great, things were were energized, exciting, this is new, we don't really know what's happening, but there's conflict in that, right? Right? And today, here, in our midst, in our community, there's conflict. There's always going to be conflict. When you get this many people together, it's not going to be smooth and perfect and neat. If you ever find a church that doesn't have any problems, leave. Because you're probably going to mess it up. (laughs) This is the reality of it. We are sinful people. And as much as we have been redeemed by Christ, we still uh, have the ability to hurt one another. And, and our tendency, oftentimes in those situations, is to continue to, when we have been hurt, is to hurt back. Or to just run away. But the work that the Spirit is doing in this community and I believe the work that the Spirit desires to do in our community and in, in, in all churches, the Spirit wants to bring about, about unity and connection and sharing and this opportunity for us to proclaim and bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when we choose to work through our differences, when we choose to engage that conflict, and we choose to 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 move towards somebody who so often we've wanted to pull away from. And we work towards unity. Again, it's not like oh well, we just like hey we just say we want to be unified and now we're doing it. It's it's hard, it requires a lot of work. But when we choose to do that, we proclaim the power we testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Because we have an understanding, just like these early believers had an understanding, we have an understanding that something different is happening in our world. That, that this is not what we see and what we are operating, what we're doing, is not just about uh, my own importance, and, and my, but it's about this, this church that God is forming and redeeming. And this world that God is trying to redeem. And he's called us, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he calls us as ambassadors of reconciliation, as people who pursue and engage in this work of reconciliation in our world. With the people with whom we disagree, with the people with whom we don't even want to be in the same room as them, we testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ when we pursue Relationship. We pursue love through the power of Jesus Christ. These early believers—it's not smooth and perfect and neat. It's conflict. There needs to be correction, and it's messy. When we get to Ananias and Sapphira, and it's—it's it's messy. We move through the pages of the Book of Acts, and there's good things that are happening, but it's also messy and it's broken. And it's black and white words on a page that that don't seem very three-dimensional to us. And we look at our own lives and it's very three-dimensional. And it takes time and things don't get resolved from one chapter to the next. But it it, it might take days or weeks or months of working through conflict. And yet we're invited to be, and we're instructed to be a kind of a, a community Kind of community that that shares, that supports one another. That when we have more, we can give to those who have less. We can provide for those around us. And in doing so, proclaim the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. God, we ask that. As we uh, think about the people in our own lives with whom we need to be reconciled, we ask for uh, courage to, to stay engaged with those people. Ultimately, Lord, we ask that you strengthen the unity of this church here on this corner. In doing so that you strengthen our unity with our brothers and sisters here in Shoreline, strengthen the unity that we have with our brothers and sisters around the world, that through our testimony, through our witness, through the ways in which we choose to love one another, that you may be glorified. God, if you're laying it on our hearts, if you're laying it on anyone's hearts to give their time, to give financially, uh, that's that's between you and them. We ask that we may be a kind of people who, even as we talk today, of the Vision House, that we may be people who are committed to caring for the needs of our community. And we think about the Shoreline Community Care, and we think about the Vision House, and we think about uh, the refugees that are coming into our into our area, and we think about the homeless uh, kids and the kids who we're providing lunches for for schools. And all these these families, all these needs that we know are around us, may we be a generous people who give willingly and give in a unified way as a community, not as individuals and each looking for our own glory, but as a people who are united and, and serving together. And through all this, Lord, we ask that your message of reconciliation, of your message of salvation through the death and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, be proclaimed from this corner and in this neighborhood and around the world. I pray this in your name. Amen. Now just to close here, Ephesians chapter 4 In one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This week, may you make every effort to keep the bond of unity through the Spirit.